0: In 2001, the Leonard Cohen song Hallelujah made an unexpected turn from unknown indie song to mainstream favorite. And it happened for two random and utterly unrelated reasons. One underscores the improbable nature of this song becoming the most covered song in music history. The other one is in keeping with the strange journey this song took from idea to phenomenon. The first reason we won't spend too much time on, but it was its placement in the movie Shrek. A key scene in the movie, or during a key scene in the movie, John Cale's version is played over a montage of action from different characters as they return to their lives apart from one another. Shrek was a phenomenon that almost never was, just like Hallelujah. As they made the movie, no one thought it was going to be good to be recast during shooting. No one knew what this thing was. So then, while they were doing some some reshoots, they just added in jokes for adults and some music that adults would like. No one had really ever done this in an animated movie before. The fact that it wasn't going to be a hit allowed them to experiment. And their experiments made it a hit. Suddenly, everybody wanted that song from the climactic scene. But if, it was, if that was the only thing that happened to Hallelujah that year, it's probably a song that had about a three-month shelf life, about the amount of time we wanted happy to have a shelf life. In the aftermath of the terrorist attacks on September 11th, news producers from every network were scrambling to figure out how to cover what was the only story. And it wasn't just news networks, this was every network. The world had changed, and to not acknowledge it, to just run normal programming, would have been callous. And so it was that executives at VH1, a music channel, were trying to figure out what to put on the air on 9-11 and the days that followed. They had a montage of video clips of the destruction, of first responders coming to the aid of victims, of people reacting and responding to this terrible attack, but they didn't know what music to put with it. They went through a number of songs, but had to vet all the lyrics to make sure there was nothing inappropriate. And they were at a loss. You're VH1, you're a music channel, and you can't find the song to capture this the most pivotal moment in recent American history. Then a young assistant suggested a little-known song by a little-known musician. And the, the words, the mood of the song, the affect is perfect. VH1 puts that song with the images of 9-11 and suddenly that song sung by that musician becomes the song that resonates with the moment. And it just so happens the version of this song about clinging to hope in the midst of brokenness that became the anthem for the moment was sung by someone whose life ended in brokenness and tragedy. It was Jeff Buckley's Hallelujah that VH1 used and resonated in speaking to the pain and brokenness we felt while also calling us to hope in the midst of that pain. Jeff Buckley grew up the son of singer Tim Buckley, although he grew up not knowing his father. He met him once when Jeff was eight, but there was no relationship. Tim Buckley died very young of a drug overdose, ending any chance of resurrecting their relationship. Jeff got his start playing clubs in New York City, but his big break came when he was playing a tribute show for his father. He sang a song of his father's called, I Didn't Mean to Be Your Mountain, that was written by his father about an infant, Jeff Buckley. And so it was that Buckley struck up a friendship with the program director from that show. And when the program director of that show went out of town, Buckley house sat for her and found a CD entitled, I'm Your Fan, a tribute album to Leonard Cohen. And on that CD, Buckley heard John Cale sing a song called Hallelujah. And Buckley added it to his weekly club sets that he got connected to by Glenn Hansard, which isn't important to the story, it's just a fun fact for John, who loves Glenn Hansard. Buckley, puts it, uh, Buckley records a record and he puts it on this record, but he's still this small time talent playing in New York City. His record, Grace, was widely considered a massive flop. Buckley and his song don't get a wider hearing until a personal tragedy strikes. Three years after Grace came out and disappointed, Buckley moved to Memphis, to try to find a new start and a new sound. He began writing and recording songs and sending them to his band in New York as they were getting ready to start recording a full-time album. On the day his band arrived in Memphis, Buckley and a friend spent the afternoon by Wolf River in Memphis. Buckley waded out into the water, his friend turned his back for a moment, and Buckley disappeared. Fire and rescue, paramedics, and helicopters were called in to search for this beautiful young singer just entering the prime of life. They searched and searched and searched and found nothing. Six days later, a boat traveling along the river saw something in the water and pulled out the drowned remains of Jeff Buckley. Like the father, he never knew Jeff Buckley died tragically and too early. Following his death as is often the case, his art got a wider hearing than it ever did in his life. So it was his personal tragedy that allowed his rendition of Hallelujah to become the song that defined a national tragedy. A broken man bearing witness to his pain yet still having the courage to sing Hallelujah Became the words for a nation shocked by the horror we saw who clung to the hope that we might one day risk singing hallelujah once more. He sang the words for us that we weren't ready to sing ourselves, but his singing made us hope. Advent isn't a time when we hope naively, Advent isn't a time when the church witnesses to a quick and magic fix that is coming into the world. Advent is a time when we sing brokenness and hope, when we acknowledge the darkness while still pointing to the coming light. That truth is made plain in our scripture reading this morning. That comes to us from the prophet Zephaniah. It's in the third chapter, sing daughter Zion, shout aloud Israel, be glad and rejoice with all your heart, daughter Jerusalem. The Lord has taken away your punishment. He has turned back your enemy. The Lord, the King of Israel, is with you. Never again will you fear any harm. On that day they will say to Jerusalem, Do not fear, Zion. Do not let your hands hang limp. The Lord your God is with you, the mighty warrior who saves. He will take great delight in you. In his love he will no longer rebuke you, but will rejoice over you with singing. I will remove from you all who mourn over the loss of your appointed festivals, which is a burden and reproach for you. At that time, I will deal with all who oppressed you. I will rescue the lame. I will gather the exiles. I will give them praise and honor in every land where they have suffered shame. At that time, I will gather you. At that time, I will bring you home. I will give you honor and praise among all the peoples of the earth when I restore your fortunes before your very eyes. Thus says the Lord. Now, before looking at Zephaniah's words here, I want to talk about the rest of the book. Zephaniah lived in Jerusalem during the reign of King Josiah. Josiah was the last of the good kings of Israel, and his reign would bring about reforms that called the people back to following the laws and ways of God. Chronicles talks about the good times that happened under King Josiah. However, Zephaniah sees another reality. Perhaps he writes before Josiah's reforms. Perhaps he writes before they really take effect. But either way, as Zephaniah walks through the streets of Jerusalem, he sees idolatry, corruption, and injustice. And so Zephaniah speaks out, calling for God's justice. Zephaniah is a short book. It's only three chapters long. If you're looking for it in your Bibles, it can be hard to find. It's stuck, you know, Skip it easily. Them through. Zephaniah has nine sermons in it, uh, or oracles, as they're called in biblical interpretation. Our lesson today is the ninth and final oracle. As we'll discuss, and as we heard, it's about hope and God's exaltation of those who suffer and who are outcasts. But the other eight oracles, the other eight sermons are completely different in nature. They are about God's impending judgment on Israel. He proclaims that the day of the Lord is coming when all will be judged for breaching and breaking the covenant. Zephaniah announces cosmic destruction upon the world, especially on the people of Judah, Jerusalem, and Israel for breaking the covenant. Priests do not fare too kindly in Zephaniah's book. Perhaps why pastors don't read this book a lot in church. Eight sermons, one after the other, proclaiming God's judgment on the people, saying the end is coming because of Israel's unfaithfulness, saying God should be done with the lot of us. And then after that, after all that, we get this passage. Sing, daughter Zion, which after reading the first eight articles, nobody wants to sing. We wanna hide a ball in the fetal position. Sing, daughter Zion, shout aloud Israel, be glad and rejoice with all your heart, daughter Jerusalem. The Lord has taken away your punishment. He has turned back your enemy. The Lord, the King of Israel is with you. Never again will you fear any harm. That's a message of hope. That's not a message of destruction. That's a message of deliverance. That's a message of salvation. For literally 88% of this book, I did the math, 88%, Zephaniah has been saying, it's too late. Judgment is coming. Bad stuff is going to happen, and it's all your fault. And now he is saying, God has relented. God isn't against you. God isn't mad at you for breaking the covenant. God is with you. You don't need to fear. Again, for the vast majority of this book, Zephaniah has been telling them, all the things they ought to fear. And now he says, fear no more. On that day, he continues, they will say to Jerusalem, do not fear Zion. Do not let your hands hang limp. The Lord your God is with you, the mighty warrior who saves. He will take great delight in you. In his love, he will no longer rebuke you, but will rejoice over you with singing. The people are called to rejoice because God is with them. God fights for them. God delights in us. But in this we hear echoes of the incarnation, a call that God is with us. And it is God's presence that serves as the nature of our protection and the reason for our rejoicing. That this oracle is an oracle of hope and deliverance stems from God's very presence in and among God's people. I will remove from you all who mourn over the loss of your appointed festivals, which is a burden and reproach for you. At that time, I will deal with all who oppressed you. I will rescue the lame. I will gather the exiles. I will give them praise and honor in every land where they have suffered shame. And at that time, I will gather you. At that time, I will bring you home. I will give you honor and praise among all the peoples of the earth when I restore your fortunes before your very eyes. Thus says the Lord. Zephaniah ends by describing the consequences of God's presence with us. The poor and the downtrodden the oppressed and the marginalized, the least and the lost will be raised up. God will rescue those who are in pain. God will heal those who hurt. All the wrongs in this world will be made right. God being here means that we can hope that those moments of pain and brokenness we experience will be redeemed and made whole. We see in this passage that God's presence in our world is not merely static. God promises us, Delivery from our enemies, but not just in a way that protects us. Instead, God's presence is dynamic. It brings joy. It animates. It gives life. It rescues. It envelops us and moves within us. God's presence is dynamic as it changes us and changes our world. The magic of Christmas, the magic of God's kingdom, is coming into our lives and into our world. We know it's coming. God has promised that it's coming and God makes good on his promises. God is coming into the world and God's presence will heal us and restore us and fix us and change us. But what this particular passage illuminates is how God's presence comes. These words of comfort and hope and promise come in the midst of words of judgment, come out of a community, experiencing injustice and oppression. God doesn't promise to come to a perfect community, a perfect people, a people already redeemed. God promises to come to a people who need redemption. But that means God promises to come to a community that experiences brokenness. Hallelujah came to a community experiencing tragedy from the lips of a musician whose life ended in tragedy. And that resonance created magic. That resonance created beauty that resonance created healing. This year, rather than Christmas coming to perfect homes and perfect lives, perhaps Christmas needs to come to people who need saving, to broken people who live in broken communities who need their lives redeemed and restored. This year, this Christmas, perhaps we can view the imperfection in our lives as signs of God's future coming It isn't the perfect moments that reveal our coming Savior, but the hurt and the pain. That's what signals to us that our God is on the move. For our God comes to us in the midst of our brokenness in order to create wholeness and peace. Let us pray.